0: Now look, oh, good morning brethren and sisters. Now look, in Australia we are very strict on time and I'm having a lot of trouble coping with the fact that we're two minutes late. Uh, It really agitates me. I know the Northern American brethren keep going over time but me, I'm very strict and pedantic. It's just the sort of person I am. It just really agitates me. So if I'm a little bit agitated, you'll understand why. All right, the Apostle John shows us that the Lord Jesus Christ in the way in which he treats us can change all of us. Everyone needs to change. When we look at the Apostle John, we put him right up there on a pedestal and rightly so and we wonder, well, what did he have to change? You know, of all the disciples, we think, well, there was nothing wrong. Everything was okay with the Apostle John? Oh, no, no, no. The Apostle John had some amazing problems that he had to overcome. What were they? We'll start off in Mark chapter 3 and at verse 17. Right at the beginning, the Lord highlights what is going to be the great challenge for the Apostle John. And again, we want to be positive. John had a great problem and he overcame. We likewise have big problems and we likewise... Because the Lord treats us in the way in which he treats us, we likewise can overcome our problems. Mark 3.17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, are called Boanerges, sons of thunder. Now the way in which, you've probably got a note in your margin, but the way in which we normally expound this, we say sons of thunder mean that these two boys had a very fiery, aggressive attitude which fortunately they toned down in later life. But there's one big problem with that. The Lord always comes up with a new name to describe the new person. He never, ever comes up with a name that goes back to the old character faults. Otherwise, in the kingdom, you've got John who comes up and you say, oh, here comes, brother, aggressive one. It wouldn't make sense. But not only that, when we look at John in his latter life, when he writes the epistles, there's still the same fiery passion there. Very strong language. At at times, we're surprised as we read the epistles of John. Very strong language to those who pull apart the truth. You may want to write this in your margin. Where you've got Boanerges, in actual fact, it means son of Regaz. That's the literal translation of Boanerges. Sons of Regaz, R-E-G-A-Z. Regaz simply means that you tremble or shake because you feel things very, very strongly. Strong's translates it to quiver with violent emotion. What it's telling us is that the Apostle John was a very intense emotional man. He felt things very strongly. So therefore he feels angry. He feels so angry it causes him to shake. He has strong love. That causes him to shake. He has incredible anticipation and that causes him to shake. And I think, brethren and sisters, on rare occasions we've met people like this. People who feel things so strongly they start to tremble or shake and then he's called the son of thunder and the focus on thunder is the shaking. You know what happens when the thunder comes, there's shaking. It's saying that he feels things strongly and he starts to shake. If he was called the son of lightning it means he'd be going quick, he's a quick runner, which he was by the way, but the focus is he's a son of thunder And thunder is emphasising the quaking. It's telling us that he felt things very, very strongly and he had trouble controlling the strong feelings that he had. And we're going to see that as we go through his life. He felt things, he felt love, he felt anger very, very strongly. In the latter part of his discipleship, the Lord says, yes, I like that part about you, John. I love the fact you feel things intensely and he still feels intense love. He still feels intense hate but in the latter part of his discipleship he knew what to love and what to hate and he hated the appropriate things like hypocrisy and lack of love and he loved everything that was as right. But at first... He has very strong feelings that he had trouble controlling of wrath and anger. And he shows that to the wrong people at the wrong time. Now let's have a look at the first example of where that is seen. We go across to, to um, Mark chapter 9. Always a worry, isn't it? You look at your notes. Where's, where's the verse? Where's the verse? And you go into a panic. oh finally, Mark chapter 9. That's why I was so excited. Mark 9, I finally found it. Mark 9, and at verse 33. He came to Capernaum, and the Lord asks, What were you arguing amongst yourselves as we were walking? It's a typical scene. The disciples are there having a big discussion, and the Lord is ahead getting on to the next particular place where they were going to which is Capernaum and they held their peace in verse 34 for along the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest what were you arguing about and there is a long embarrassed silence finally in verse 38 John answers, what's he answering? He's answering the question the Lord put, what are you arguing about? And finally John says, "Uh, Lord, I think this is what caused the argument. What caused the argument, Lord, is that we saw one casting out devils in your name and he followed not us and we forbade him because he followed not us. Now, what had happened is that a disciple had been healing people who had demons, healing people who were insane. James and John challenged him very, very strongly. They came back to the disciples and then some of the other disciples said, look, James and John, I I think you're a bit strong in the way you handled that disciple. And James and John are still trembling and shaking. They felt very, very strongly. They'd been very, very angry. And they said, who are you to tell me what to do? Oh, I tell you what, I'll be telling you what to do in the kingdom. I'll be the greatest. You'll be the greatest, we'll be the greatest. Peter says, no, I'll be the greatest. Judas says, no, no, I'm going to be the greatest. And so the argument continued. So they're saying, look, in a sense, Lord, it was us who started the argument. But then he goes on to say, look, Lord, he's almost saying, Lord, we stopped him. I think we did the right thing, didn't we? What do you think, Lord? When it says they forbade him, in the Greek tense it it implies that they did it over and over again. What's the problem? What's the issue that John has? Well you see what is repeated twice in verse 38. He follows not us, he follows not us. In other words yes we realise he's a disciple but he's not the special disciple. He's not part of Jesus and the special apostles, the inner group. disciples and it appears from verse 38 what finally occurred is that the son of Regaz the son of deep feeling was very sensitive to what affected the Lord Jesus Christ and he felt that here was a disciple performing these miracles in competition with the Lord we can't have that We've asked him nicely to stop healing, but he keeps on going. And finally, when it all comes to a head on this particular day, insane people still come up to this man. Is he going to heal them after we've told him not to? He is. Come on, James, let's fix him up. And the disciple of deep feeling is angry, he's shaking, and when he gets down to this disciple, he is really strong, and he says, who are you? Don't heal again. You're competing with the Lord, aren't you? You're not one of us. And the word forbid means to prevent by word or action. And when this poor little disciple saw two of the sons of thunder in full flight, he stopped. Okay, okay, leave us alone. And John walks off very smug. (laughs) Oh, James, that fixed him up. And he was not aware that the Lord knew exactly what was going on. And his Lord wasn't happy. And John is devastated to hear the Lord say, verse 39, don't stop him. There is no man who can do a miracle in my name and the next minute speak evil of me. John, the very fact he can do miracles is a sign that God approves of all he's doing. What right have you got to come in and interfere? John, you're too strong. Verse 40, if he's not against us, He's on our side. You're being too strong for the truth. But more importantly, you've got angry and realise how that's affected someone else. Verse 42, you have offended a little one. John, you've discouraged that poor brother so much. There's a very real possibility he'll leave the truth and never come back again. John, if you keep doing this, what I suggest you do is buy a millstone, tie it around your neck and take a long walk off a short pier. Our work is to save men, not to discourage people so much they'll want to leave the truth. And the words of the Lord are very strong as John is rebuked, for being discouraging and being far too aggressive. John, it's a big problem. I've been putting up with it for a long time. But I've got seven months to go and it's time to work on your problem and it won't be easy. Verse 43, if your hand offend thee, cut it off. Verse 45, John, if your foot offend thee, cut it off. Verse 47, if your eye offend thee, pluck it out. It's a very strong problem, John, and you've got to be absolutely ruthless in overcoming the problem. And John is shattered as he realises the Lord says, if you treat people this way, I don't want you in my kingdom. And John is amazed. He feels the Lord is about to establish the kingdom and Jesus is saying, John, I know you love me, but I don't want you there. You won't be in the kingdom, John. And unless you make some drastic changes in your life, your end will be at the end of verse 43, you'll be cast into the fire that can never be quenched. You'll be cast in verse 44 into the fire that will never be quenched. You'll be cast, in verse 45, into the fire that will never be quenched. And what John is being told here, John, you are far too fiery in the way in which you do with your brethren and sisters. And if you are too fiery in the way in which you do with your brethren and sisters, you will end up in the fire of Gehenna. No doubt about it whatsoever. I can't forgive you. I don't want you to be part of my kingdom. It's very sobering. How often are we the sons of Ragaz? We feel very strongly about something. We're angry. We're shaking with angry. And we go into battle to fight for the truth. And we do exactly what John does here. And we don't just stop and realize actually, the other person is right and I am totally in the wrong. And it's not the right way to handle things. So often we are far too intense, far too strong, far too aggressive to the wrong person at the wrong time and we feel that's fixed them up. And without meaning to, We've left behind someone who is at risk of leaving the truth. It applies to our brothers and sisters and our young people. Be very, very, very careful how we treat each other. And increasingly, As we go throughout the ecclesial world, brethren particularly are being far, far, far too aggressive. And if you are being too aggressive, stop it. I'm not saying that we should not stand up for the truth. And I'm not saying that we should not stand up for the truth with all our might but do it in the right way and stop being aggressive because people will leave the truth. And that's the danger. The people say, if that's what the truth's all about, I'm out of here. I don't want to be part of this group. Don't do it. We go to Luke chapter 9. Sorry, I'm crunching on ice there. And <laughs> you're picking it up in the microphone. But it's far better than hearing my stomach rumble. It's the sound of thunder. <laughs> One month later, there's now six months to go. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You've probably got a note in your margin. He set his face like flint. He's absolutely determined to go down to Jerusalem. And over the next six months, the Lord set himself an incredible program to appeal to every single one in the nation who hasn't heard the truth so far so that everyone would know exactly what he was going to do when he finally arrived in Jerusalem. But look at his focus. What is he concentrating on in verse 51? What was he looking forward to in verse 51? What's the great thing that drove him on in verse 51? What is it? What fired him along? That's one phrase in verse 51. What is it? Received up. His focus wasn't on the crucifixion. It wasn't on the resurrection. The thing that drove him on was to see his father for the very first time and to embrace his father for the first time. That's what drove him on verse 52, so he's going to slowly make his way down to Jerusalem. The first place he comes to is Samaria. And he sends messengers before his face and they entered into the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And you get the idea that these men, probably two or three of them, were sent before the rest of them, perhaps to find somewhere to stay for the night and perhaps to get food. But that's not what verse 52 is saying. It's to make ready for him. In other words, to prepare the Samaritans for Jesus. And these messengers probably thought the Samaritans would be very excited to see Jesus. They were back in Luke chapter 4, but this time the Samaritans, as soon as they get a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, they can see it's different. He doesn't have to say a thing, They can see written on his face that he's going to keep going down to Jerusalem. And the Samaritans said, we know what the Jews think about us. If you want to go down to Jerusalem, well go down to Jerusalem and leave us alone. We don't even want you in our village. Get out. And John's watching all this. He's getting angry. He's starting to shake. His eyes are flashing with anger. He's far too protective of his Lord to allow these filthy Samaritans to snub Jesus. You've got to be joking. This is the first village that you come to. The next Samaritan village is miles away. We'll be walking till one or two o'clock in the morning. Okay, John thinks, the Lord's not going to defend himself. Well, I'll do it for him. These rotten Samaritans. What's an appropriate punishment for these people? Ah, just a few verses before in Luke 9, I've seen Elijah. And Elijah was in this very place when he commanded fire to come down from heaven when the messengers were sent from Ahab. What a great idea. Let's send fire down from heaven and burn these Samaritans alive. And so the Lord walks off. He's probably 20 or 30 yards away. And John yells out in verse 54, Lord, I've got a great idea. Do you desire that I that, that you command fire from heaven and literally burn these people alive? And the Lord turns around, absolutely horrified. He turns completely around in verse 55 and looks at John. Now John thought the Lord would say, Good idea, John. Yeah, wow. Let's burn them alive. But John is amazed. As the Lord looks at him with eyes that are filled with rebuke and anger and sorrow. And in verse 55, he rebukes him. It is the strongest of all the Lord's rebukes. He very rarely did this to a disciple. It's only used on one other occasion to an individual disciple. And yes, the other one who received this strong rebuke was Peter. When he tried to stop the Lord going to Jerusalem and it says the Lord very strongly rebuked him and said, get behind me. Here's someone who dearly loved his Lord and he would have been absolutely devastated to hear the Lord strongly, strongly rebuke him. Why is it so strong? Brothers and sisters, the Apostle John is asking Jesus Christ to murder our whole town. And if the Lord accepted his suggestion, you can be guaranteed no Samaritan would listen to the word of God forever. The very fact the Samaritans heard what he had to say was bad enough. And so in verse 55 he says, John, because you are a son of deep feeling, it stops you from knowing what spirit, what attitude you've got. The spirit that we should have is to save men alive, not to burn them alive. And in verse 56, he goes on to another village. The Lord avoided the confrontation. Why? Because there's no benefit to the truth. Oh, look, if it was necessary, the Lord had no problem defending himself or the truth. He had no problem getting, in, getting stuck into blatant sinners like the scribes and the Pharisees. But there's no point doing that to poor Samaritans. Give them time, give them opportunity, and they will respond. And so this time the rebuke is very, very strong. Before it only affected one disciple, now it affects a whole town. But both incidents show that John's got a big problem. You're far too strong, you're far too extreme, you're far too judgmental. And the Lord is saying, look, in some situations, it's better to leave it alone. The first time he was rebuked to a disciple who is doing the right thing. This time he is rebuked for his response to people doing the wrong thing. There's no doubt the Samaritans were wrong but he's still got the same problem. You're too strong, you're too impatient and again, John, you have been very, very damaging. And again, the same thing happens to us, brethren and sisters. Sometimes people come up to us who are clearly wrong. We're talking about an issue where the scriptures are crystal clear. They are very clearly going against what scripture says. And they come up to us and they are very confrontational and they want to fight over an issue that they are clearly wrong about. And what happens? They are very full on and we end up giving them a fight. And I say to them, I'll fix you up right now. Our response is just as strong, but again, brothers and sisters, it doesn't work. And when we use harsh, strong words against some, not someone, someone, the hope of influencing them for good is gone for a very long time, if not forever. It doesn't matter who they are, brothers and sisters or young people. It doesn't matter how aggressive they are. It doesn't matter how wrong they are. Surely what we're trying to do, despite the fact the person is being totally obnoxious, we're trying to turn their heart to God and save them alive. And sometimes that takes time. And sometimes it's better to leave people alone and give them space. Brothers and sisters, I think it's very, very wonderful that John didn't say, that's me. I'm cranky. I'm angry. It's been in my family for years. Dad's cranky. Dad's angry. Grandpa's cranky. Grandpa's angry. And great-grandpa, No, no, no. Because he loved his Lord so, so much and because he knew it upset his Lord so, so much, he was absolutely determined to fix up his problem and it wasn't easy. And once he changed after the resurrection, the Apostle John, for the rest of his life, for the next 60 years, does not put one foot wrong Never. And he received incredible provocation over the next 60 years. For the next 60 years, he had to deal with dreadful, aggressive people. You couldn't get a more aggressive person than a Judaizer or a Gnostic. And if you had anger management problems, you can be guaranteed a good old Judaizer would bring it out. But he doesn't put one foot wrong. That is remarkable. And a few months later, the Samaritans responded to the gospel and in Acts chapter 8, who did they send up? Peter and John. We go across to Mark chapter 10. Six months later, the Lord is going to be crucified in two weeks. He says in Mark chapter 10 that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to mock me and scourge me and in verse 34, spit upon me and kill me. If I said, look, I'm going down to the shops later on today and when I get down there, I'm going to be mocked, scourged, spat upon and probably killed, why would I tell you that? What would you say? Oh, have a good time, see you later. I'd only tell you that because I want your support, I want your encouragement. And I believe that's what the Lord wanted. He wanted at least John to put his arm around him and say, Lord, it's dreadful, but I will be there for you. But John, who was the most perceptive of his disciples, doesn't do that at all. In actual fact, it's far worse. They're not worried about the Lord. They're worried about themselves. And they're like kids. They come to the Lord and say, Lord, will you promise to give me what we want? They're just like little kids. Our kids come up and say, will you give me what I want? And like any parent, we say, well, what do you want? And that's exactly what the Lord does in verse 36. What would ye that I would do for you? Now, we've got to combine the other record. The parallel record is in Matthew chapter 20. And they say, don't go to it. Matthew, I said, don't go to it. No, I'm only joking. In Matthew 20, James and John say, Lord, mum just wants to have a little chat. And from stage left, in comes Salome, the aunt of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she's straight on her knees. As far as she's concerned, the Lord is already king. She's so sure that the kingdom's going to be established very, very soon. And she says, Lord, sorry to worry you, but I just wondered, would there be any chance when you set up your throne in Jerusalem, could little Jamesy be on the left and little Johnny on the right? Do you mind... And then James and John in verse 37 chime in and say, come in behind mum and say, yes Lord, is that okay? We know you're going to establish the kingdom shortly. Is that all right? One on the right, one on the left. Now at first we're horrified. At first it appears that there's this raw ambition. They've been fighting for quite some months over who's going to be the greatest. And they've got the upper hand because they feel they can manipulate the Lord by bringing mum in. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to keep it in the family? You know, cousins. Wouldn't it be nice to have the cousins right next to you? And remember, mum's been very generous, hasn't she, over the times, paid for everything. You know, you can, you, you, can, you can understand, can't you, Lord? Look, don't underestimate the Apostle John. We're getting towards the end and he has developed an incredible love for the Lord And he says, look, in the kingdom we don't want things to change. We're close to you now and we want to be close to you then. The diaglot translates it, we want to sit in the glory of thee. And John says, I want it to be like it was in the upper room. In the upper room I was right next to you and I want the same thing to continue into the kingdom. And the proof that it's more than just straight ambition is the Lord is very gentle in verse 38, and he says, look, you don't know what you're asking for. You're assuming my glory will be the kingdom, but John, my greatest glory, my greatest triumph will be on the cross. And in verse 38, John, when I drink the cup of suffering and I go through the baptism of death, do you think you can be right next to me? Do you think you can drink of both of those things? John, I'll have enough trouble going through that myself and I am the son of God. Look at the response of the two boys. We can. No problem. It's very similar to Peter. Oh, all these people will be offended, but no problem. Very self-conscious. Very self-confident. Yep, no problem. We can go through the cup, baptism. No worries whatsoever. They didn't even know what the cup or the baptism was. But again, it emphasizes the love of John and he really meant it. I love you so much. I'm prepared to do whatever I have to do as long as I'm near you. And the Lord says in verse 39, okay, you've requested something. i tell you what I can give. You can drink, verse 39, of the cup of suffering that I drink of and you can be baptized with the baptism of death that I'm going to be baptized with you but I can't grant you a throne. You might think, great, oh terrific. I can't give you a throne, but I can promise you plenty of suffering. Great! Until you realise what the Lord is saying, you can partake of my suffering and my baptism. And you realise then what the Lord is offering them. You can be part of my fellowship and by going through my baptism and my suffering, you can be in me. That's the great expression used in the New Testament, being in Christ. And you say, what does it mean to be in Christ? Basically, it means you are part of the family and you get all of the benefits of the family. You're trying to use family connections, but that's got nothing to do with it. I'm inviting you to be part of the divine family and you'll get all of the benefits that I receive from my father. But in verse 40, to sit on my right hand and on my left, it's not mine to give. That's up to my father. The other disciples are furious and in actual fact, the Lord's rebuke to the other disciples in verse 41 is stronger than it was to John. John has received his last rebuke from the Lord. He's been a little thoughtless and a little ignorant. But I believe it's this last rebuke that brought about the final change. It's the last refining of the character of John that caused the Apostle John just a few days later to be described as, As the disciple who Jesus loved. And why did Jesus love him? Because he now has the right love to his brothers and sisters. Go across to John 13 and at verse 23. We're now in the upper room. In the upper room we focused on how the Lord treated Judas. Now we're going to focus on how the Lord treated the Apostle John. We all know the story. They are reclining. And therefore, in verse 23, it says that John is leaning on the Lord's bosom. So it means here the Lord is reclining like this on his arm and the Apostle John is right next to him, reclining as well, and he can lay back and lay his head in the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say, that's nice. They're very, very close. But the Apostle John has finally reached the stage where he is the disciple that Jesus loved. Oh, we all know that John has always been a deeply emotional, loving man. But now, at this point, Jesus loves him. Why? because he has got the right attitude to other people. And that is so powerful for us, brothers and sisters. The Lord finally will come to love us when we've got the right attitude to other people. Sometimes we fail to see the significance of just how strong that expression is He lay in the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, of course, it's saying that the Apostle John was incredibly close, comfortable, even intimate with the Lord Jesus Christ until you read John 1 verse 18. Don't go to it. But John 1 verse 18 says, No man hath seen God at any time except the only begotten Son who has declared him. But I left something out. I'll read it again. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son is where? Where is the only begotten Son? No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father hath declared him... Realise what that verse is saying, brothers and sisters. It's saying that the Lord Jesus Christ has an incredibly close relationship with God. How do I describe that relationship? He's in the bosom of the Father. And it's telling us that when the Apostle John is lying in the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ, John has a similar relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And why? Because now he shows love to the brethren. In verse 21, the Lord has just said, one of you are going to betray me. And in verse 24, across the table, Simon says, hey, John, who is it? Who is it? Find out who it is. I'll get him before he even stands up out of his chair. All John has to do is lean back. He's already in the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he whispers into the ear of the Lord, Lord, who is it? And the Lord leans down and whispers into his ear, verse 26, It's the one to whom I give this piece of bread to. Now you picture the Apostle John's eyes were riveted on the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he watches in awful fascination. He's going to find out who it is who is going to betray the Lord He dips this piece of bread and he passes it to Judas and his jaw drops. But this shows the incredible change that has occurred with the Apostle John. He's the son of Regaz. He trembles and shakes. He feels things so strongly. But he is learning to lead things to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says nothing and does nothing. You've got to remember, this is the disciple only six months ago who wanted to fry the Samaritans alive for not giving the Lord a bed for the night. And here is someone betraying the Lord to death and he does nothing. It would have been very simple to just go to Peter, Pete. Judas, and within two seconds, Peter would have been out of his chair, voom, Judas's head rolls across the floor. But he does nothing. He is rooted to the spot. Why? Because the Lord didn't want him to, and now he loved the Lord so much, he would do nothing to risk the friendship. And the Apostle John, right at the end of his Gospel, realises that this is the high point in their relationship. John 21 and at verse 20. He wants this recorded. He wants this remembered. He now has the right attitude to other people. The Lord has developed this by the way in which he's treated the Apostle John. He is in John 21 and at verse 20, the disciple that Jesus loved, point one. Point two, he is the disciple who leaned on the breast of the Lord. He's incredibly close. And point three, he asked the question out of great love and concern. Lord, who is it who is betraying you? And the fourth point is even more powerful because it's not stated here. The Lord trusted him by telling him who was going to betray him. And the Lord would not have done that unless He trusted him implicitly. What's brought about this incredible change? It's the way in which the Lord treated him. We go to John 19. And next day, John has to watch his dearest friend being tortured to death for six hours. And in verse 26, verse 25 of John 19, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother Mary, his mother's sister Salome, the mother of the Apostle John, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Who else is there? The Apostle John. And he's got his arm around his auntie and he's got his arm around his mum. And they look up. Who's on his right hand? Who's on his left? And they exchange glances. As the mother and John are horrified. That's where we have to be, where the thieves are. The Lord has now been on the cross for about three hours. The mothers with their intuition can see that the pain of the Lord is intensifying and they overcome their embarrassment and come closer to the cross and the son of deep feeling has to be near his Lord and he looks up at his Lord only a foot above him, right in front of him and brothers and sisters the Apostle John is a pattern of what all of us have to do at some stage in our discipleship, closely look into the eyes of your Lord And you look at that face, it's just a mess. His eyes have been belted around. They're swollen, almost swollen shut. Lips have been ripped apart. His face has been torn by the thorns. There's blood that's fresh and dried all over his face. Parts of his beard have been ripped out and covered with dry spit. And every time the Lord moves, you can see the tears on his hands and his feet getting bigger and bigger. And close up you can now see how difficult it is for the Lord to breathe. The Lord almost suffocates. And then with an incredible groan of pain he has to push up to breathe out. But the problem is his back has been ripped apart. They've ripped off skin and muscle. And now bare rib cage with the exposed nerves are ripped on this shocking, shocking cruel cross. And John looks into the eyes of his Lord that are hurting and are blurred with perspiration and blood and tears, and these eyes seek out and focus on his mum. She felt his pain more than anyone else, with the exception of his God. And John is amazed. These eyes are just filled with absolute agony. But he looks at his mum with love and compassion. And he's got to clench his teeth. Everything he said on the cross, he has to clench his teeth and draw himself up so he can breathe out. And as he says to his mother in verse 26, Woman, behold your son. He's talking about the Apostle John. I'm going, but John will care for you as a son. Then he said in verse 27 to John, But before the Lord said anything, his eyes focus on John. And John looks up at those beautiful, beautiful eyes. And despite the agony, he looks into eyes that register, John, thank you so much. You've been with me the whole time. And John would never, for the rest of his days, forget the look of gratitude. John, thank you so much. It's helped me that you have been with me. And then through the tears, an incredible look of love. As he pushes himself up and John, he says to John, as he then looks at Mary, John, behold your mother. He's going to go very, very shortly. He's going to leave this present earth. And what we've got on the cross is a poor, naked man who had absolutely not one possession. He's lost the only possession he had And that was the clothes on his back and they've taken that off him now and a Roman soldier's walked off with his garment. He's got nothing left. Oh, yes, he has. There's only one thing left that's his. It's mum. I've got to leave mum alone. She's not going to have me anymore. My dear, dear mum, who I love so much, And I'm going to leave her, the one who I love so much, the one, one thing I've got left in this life, and I'm going to leave her to the one who I love so, so much, my dear, my lovely, my beloved Apostle John.